Hello, everyone. My name is Suki Thompson. Welcome to Reset, the podcast, a place for you to get some inspiration and advice to help you live a more fulfilling work life. I do hope that your journey to feel more connected, more inspired, just a bit more energized starts here. Take a moment now with me to reset. Suki gets to hear all about Lex Bradshaw Zanger's self-described squiggly career and the journey which has led him to the esteemed position of Chief Marketing and Digital Officer at L'Oreal. He shares with us many of the small incremental changes which have led to his exciting and extensive career. In the process of learning about Lex's professional trajectory, we have the privilege of hearing about his personal journey as he talks about why understanding himself as an introvert has been fundamental in shaping the way he builds relationships with people, both in and out of the workplace. On this theme of understanding yourself, we also hear about Lex the leader, and for him, why doing the simple things well is one of the defining attributes of his leadership style. They reflect on the pivots and changes COVID brought to the business, as well as the new opportunities it created. They also look to the future, talking all things digital, brand, hybrid working, and the skill sets which are required to craft cultures of true innovation and transformation. Lex also shares some future ambitions in a personal capacity, including his aim to look after himself as more of a priority as he tries to balance the juggling act that is work and home life. Lex, hi, how are you doing today? I am very good. It's a, a rainy Monday, but very happy to be here with you, Suki. Oh, well, you see, if you were down in Cornwall on the beach, it would be sunny. But even rain at the beach is good. It's something about the beach that makes every weather perfect. There is absolutely, absolutely that. Um, well, it's so lovely to talk to you. And uh, I think we've got lots to talk about. But I think, you know, knowing what you've done, it, it's, I, I'm always fascinated to talk to particularly global marketing leaders or marketing leaders that have a role outside the UK that have got a kind of quite broad perspective on the world. And you're very interesting from a leadership perspective, I think, because you've got agency experience, consultancy experience, brand experience, different sector experience, and you're not even that old. You're so kind. Um, so let's start. Well, let's start a little bit uh, of you, because it's quite interesting to see and understand about the kind of leader that you become often happens at some stage in your earlier life. Where did you grow up, Lex? You know, I, well, so I, I wasn't born in the UK, but I grew up in the UK. I'm very, very British from about two months until about 18, 19, when I had a strange decision to go, uh, go and study abroad. But I'm very British, really, even if I've got quite a mixed heritage as a result. Yeah. And you have an unusual name. Yes. So, so my, my mother's from Argentina. My father is very British, but half Swedish. We have a good claim to fame with the first woman Nobel Prize winner in the world. But uh, so, yes, complicated name. And it's not really it's even more complicated than you can see on the screen. So I, I've suffered through childhood with a, another terrible double barreled first name and double barreled last name. But that's a story for another day. Wow. Gosh, gosh. Actually, did you? 
that's quite funny. Uh, uh, my name was Suki Bunker. So Suki's quite unusual. Bunker is not unusual, but somehow when you put the name together and for years, I hated having an unusual name and now I really like it. Is it the same for you? No, I think it, it's, it's a funny one that, you know, there are, there are times when you're young, when you want to blend in and you want to disappear and not be called out. And then later on, you realize that that's probably quite good. I remember, I remember interviewing at a, at a brand consultancy once. I was convinced that I wanted to be a brand consultant. And I didn't get the job, but the guy said, oh, you've got a great name for branding. And I was like, well, that's fabulous, but prefer the job rather than a great name. And so hence, there you are. I've always wanted to be the, the, the meme person, you know, the alter ego for Superman and his arch enemy. Not quite sure I've mastered that yet, but I don't know, maybe my wife or my colleagues would tell me differently. Ah, okay, okay. Well, has that feeling of, you know, wanting to blend in and actually now not wanting to blend in, is that, has that kind of become a bit of you as you've matured and, and your career has progressed? How, how do you feel now? No, I think, I think, yeah, I think you're completely right. I think we go through, we go through a journey of, of self-awareness in our lives and in our leadership journeys. And, and you start by wanting to disappear and to be normal and to fit in. And then at some point you start to realize that that's probably not the, not the right approach. I think that's, that's the journey that I'm on. It's definitely not finished, but it's, it's this journey of sort of moving from doing what everybody expects of you, right? a traditional sort of British public school education and then what they expect you to come afterwards. And then, and then suddenly you start to realize that in fact, you've got to figure out what's right for you, what's interesting for you, uh, but it, but it's a permanent battle. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely somewhere on the middle of that journey in terms of really understanding, and maybe not quite yet in terms of figuring out how to take it to action. There are day, there are days when you feel in control, and there are days when you're you're back in the rut of what's expected of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can I can absolutely see that. So I guess you know, for you, one of your first resets was going from that agency background, WBP, Leo Burnett into when you first went to Facebook, didn't you? So you sort of did right. the midway house, particularly at a time when. Facebook was quite new and growing. Um, what happened there? What was that reset? Was that a moment for you to go, actually, I want to, to stand out a bit more now? I think, you know, I think there are two, two pieces to that. You know, I, I love the agency world and I still think the agency world is fabulous, but, it, but I had a love-hate relationship with it, you know, at a number of different levels, you know, what you're capable of doing, the resources you've got, how much of the picture you see and how much you're in that narrow box. And so part of me actually initially wanted to get out of the agency world. And, and I think lots of people in the agency sit for a while saying, God, I've got to go client side. That's where it's happening. There's the decisions. And then you then you finally do that and you realize that there's there's pros and cons to everything, which is which is always true in life. But mm -hmm. so, so strangely enough, I, I didn't manage to achieve that. And what I did was I completely moved continents. So I had an opportunity, found an opportunity in Dubai. So I was in Paris with JWT and, and thinking about what the right role was. And I was and I was in that position, you know, trying to grasp. I remember having a dis discussion with my boss at the time. You know, he said, "Well, tell me what you want to do." So I wrote a job description on paper and I think I put a big number against it. And he said, "Well, that's great, but I'm not quite sure we can do that." And then, and then I had an opportunity to, to stay agency side, but go to the Middle East. And the Middle East was new and exciting. And, and so that was, that was somewhat of a reset because it was like, well, I can't get out of what I want to do, but I can look at it from a completely different angle. And then, and then just to be honest, you know, that was, that, was, that was a great segue. That was a great accelerator. So in a sense, it was, it was a reset and an acceleration. And that got me into whatever the, uh, the headlights or, the, or the, the list for a recruiter for Facebook, who then called me up later on and and, and yes, Facebook wasn't enormous, but it was already one of those places. You know, I don't remember that expression. You know, when somebody offers you a seat on a rocket ship, you don't mm. understand. You don't ask where it's going. You just get on. It was that one. I just said, yes, yes, definitely. I mean, if Facebook wanting to hire me, I'm, I'm definitely jumping on board. Mm. So none of those were, you know, on that on that journey you were talking about. None of them were active reset. You know, I've got to do something different. 
but it's always those little incremental changes that, that take you along that journey. Uh, I so agree. And I think, and actually I like that point where you reset to accelerate. Um, and that is kind of what happens. And that's, and that's the sort of best resets in a way, isn't it? So what was it like, in, you know, we work, or we've worked with Facebook a bit and, um, you know, of course, for me, they, uh, they are high achievers. As you say, it was a very exciting time. Um, I find their culture fascinating. And I just wonder what for you, what kind of bigger learnings do you get from being at Facebook other than the obvious of, you know, just being in a tech environment that was very new and very different at the time? There's, there's, there's loads of learnings, you know. It's incredible to look back actually on that because so it was a young organization, very lean, very global, you know, every other organization, whether it's agency side, whether it's at L'Oreal, you know, you're a country subsidiary and you work in that environment and you fit into a bigger picture. Whilst when you're in a tech company, you know, all the product is built wherever it is in Menlo Park on the West Coast and everything else is sort of sales and marketing around it with a little bit of extra product. But so you are definitely one organization versus replicating all the roles everywhere. So there's a massive connection. And it's funny, you know, we went through this, this COVID and moved to Zoom and to Teams. But I remember walking into Facebook the first day and every single meeting room has screens and every single meeting room has the ability to call every other meeting room anywhere in the world with two or three clicks. We still struggled to find the right meeting room and the right teams uh, set up. Yeah, yeah. No, so it was, it was, so it's this, it's this notion of a globally distributed organization that worked very well virtually before anybody else was also doing that. Um, I think that as a result, a lot of connection and and a different sort of transparency. I don't want to compare levels of transparency, but you know, Zuck do his his, his Q and A's every Friday. You know, and you could watch that live or you could watch the replay. That direct access to the center of what's going on was really mm -hmm. incredible. But I think that, that there's one other piece which was, for me was super interesting was that it was a sales job, and I'd never done. Actually, I think I did one tele sales job for about two days once, maybe a hundred years ago. But I'd never really done a, a pure sales job. And so for me, that was a massive learning experience. You know, you go out of your comfort zone. You know the content, the subject matter of what you're doing. But I'd never been in the context where I had a quota of numbers I had to do every month and get that over the line. So lots and lots of lots of learnings, a flatter environment, a more centralized environment, different way. How to control yourself when there's free food and free biscuits is really a big learning experience. So, so lots and lots. So I think that's really interesting. I was listening to Stephen Bartlett. Uh, the weekend. And he was saying that his previous company before he left it, their sort of USP was working remotely, um, you know, that sort of free lunches, working in a much more flexible way, uh, having different kind of holidays, you could work from abroad. And now, since COVID, loads of companies are doing that, they're embracing very different ways of working. So in many ways, their USP, a bit like Facebook's in some ways, has gone, because a lot of those things that were very unique to those sorts of businesses are now becoming much more of a norm. Um, and I wonder if, you know, if you've taken some of those learnings from being at Facebook at that time into your subsequent jobs, or you can see that that's evolving, maybe even L'Oreal now. Yeah, I think I think that's, that's an enormous can of worms now because I think the whole my hybrid and and where people are and, and working from home. So I think there's, there's a couple of things. I think one is Understanding the type of work that you do, the way teams interact and what sort of organization you fit into is critical. And then there's the meta-analysis of what works on a screen and what works in person differently. I think if I think back to my own personal experiences at Facebook, you know, we were a sales team. Normally, you're a team of two looking after a portfolio of clients, not a massive matrix across the organization you have to go out and see your clients. So, so 
to be honest, whether you're working with people in your local office or globally, didn't make any difference. The people that you needed FaceTime with yeah. were the clients. And so you needed to go and see them. And that was great because you didn't go to wherever, you know, I looked after PNG, I looked after some telcos and some banks. You turn up to reception, you say you're from Facebook, even the security guard gets excited. So, so, so that piece of it, understanding the dynamic of the organization. Where I work now, you know, I look after all of the expert functions across what is 37 brands in the UK and Ireland. You know, we're very, very matrixed. We need to interact with a lot of different internal stakeholders and you need to see those people physically. And so then, then you flip into, you know, we know that people we've met in person, people we've built a relationship with in person, physically, over dinner, over coffee, whatever, you're then very efficient over video. People who you don't know so well, it's sometimes harder. Now, I, I, would, I think that's a generalization because I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a blue, I'm an introvert. I'm not very good with people. And so I've spent a lot of time quite enjoying the bits of lockdown where I have to meet new people on Zoom because I feel much safer when you're inside that box and when I'm inside the other one. So, so there's a lot of different elements that go in there. And, and I hate to make these rash generalizations about we can do everything virtually now and it works perfectly. And that, but that is interesting, isn't it? Just touching on that a little bit more now and we'll come back to the next bit of your career in a minute. But how do you, particularly as an intro, introvert, because it's quite unusual having marketeers um, as introverts, you know, they tend to be much more extrovert. How do you get to know your team at a depth um, that makes it an effective relationship or more effective for them to succeed? I don't know whether that's a question for me or for them, but uh, <laughs> I know what I need to do. I know that I need to meet people as humans, as individuals, as parents, as partners. You know, it's not about, it's not about digging into private lives where people don't want to share but it's around really building a relationship and, and a way of communicating with the individual in front of me. And I know I need that. So I know I can't build that one to 20 or one to 50 or one to 200 in one go. I need to almost pick people off one by one and start to understand who they are. So, so I know that that's important for me. And so that's what I do. You know, I've, I've figured that out on my journey of self-awareness of leadership or whatever it might be that the way I interact properly with people is building that relationship one-to-one. And then when they're in a group, we can engage better and, and I'm more comfortable. You know, there, there is, there's a very selfish piece about that. A lot of what I've just said is about me and not necessarily about them. I hope it helps them as well, but it's what makes me feel comfortable and gets the best out of our relationship, collaboration, whatever it might be. Mm. But I think, you know, of course, it makes lots of sense, doesn't it? Because I think people want to be valued. I think you're right. People will share whatever they feel they need to share. But if you give them the opportunity to open up and have a conversation about whatever is impacting them at work, and it might be genuine work things, it might be something that's outside work, um, then they are more likely to be able to perform at their best because, you know, they've been able to have that conversation or if they need that conversation, they feel that they can come to you. And if you have that conversation, then it's likely the rest of your team will as well. Definitely. And has it been... Do you find it more difficult now or is it easier now? I mean, you said, you know, you quite like it because it's in the it's in the square on Zoom and that's that's quite a nice place to be. Um, are you finding that more challenging? Do you think your team find that more challenging or, or, or does it actually to some people say, no, this is better. And some people, you know, it's, it's not so good. I think I think there's a real mixture of everything. So. I, so I, overall, going back to your original question, I find that more easy because on my journey of self-awareness, I've discovered how I need to build relationships with people. So I know that I have to do that in person or one-to-one, on video, whatever it might be. I think what we found from a, from a work point of view in our teams is that there has got to be this balance 
we're hyper productive in working from home, hyper productive clicking from one meeting to another. And so when there's a lot of workload, when things are going crazy, that works very well. When we need to do things that are more around collaboration, thinking together, then we need that. You know, I love whiteboards and I've tried every single thing possible that's digital because I'm definitely a geek. Anything with a cable or batteries, I'm in. <laughs> but I have not found the whiteboard solution. You know, I have in my office in Hammersmith, I have a, this clever Samsung digital whiteboard. It's great, but it's not really easy to use. So I had to buy somebody to put a real one up on the wall and now I have pens. I've tried everything on Teams and Zooms with, you know, I have this Apple stylus trying to do it, but, but nothing beats a big piece of paper or on the wall and pens. And that you need to be in person for. Yeah, I agree. I agree. My IT colleagues have even bought this wonderful camera that sits above the whiteboard that you press a button and it transmits the whiteboard over the video conference, but it, it's still not quite the same. Yeah, that's funny, isn't it? Yeah, I do. I just think there are some things that feel better. And, you know, however much we think we're close to seeing somebody, it was very interesting being at the um, Advertising Week Festival the week before last, or actually even in the Oyster Catchers event last week. Um, it is funny seeing lots of people again and people you've met and spoken to maybe, you know, almost on a weekly basis yeah. for the last couple of years, and then you suddenly meet them. There is a different dynamic. And you I'm, know, not sure about, I'm not sure about you, but, you know, we tried early on in the lockdown to do sort of coffee mornings and get together. And it's quite painted. It's quite hard to, um, I, I don't mind, I have to say, shoot the shit, to, you know, have a relaxed conversation yeah. on Teams. It's, it's, quite a, it's quite a challenge. We ended up doing something slightly more informal, but structured. You know, we had sort of quiz games and yeah. bring a drink and, and do something. At least there was a reason to it. Yeah. Versus when you meet someone in real life, like you last Friday, I was in Oxford, we, there was a, a marketing symposium. And I see people that I work with, a very different conversation when you're just standing with a cup of coffee that we haven't been able to do through the screen. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's lovely. And somehow we are, our conversation broadens out in a very different way, just because it does. You know, it's, it's different. Actually, I think it's a kind of different conversation. Um, it's probably, probably some evolution to the technology that will come. You know, I remember. Yeah. I remember having a girlfriend a long time ago when we were living in different countries and we would leave Skype on all day long. And it's a very different scenario to calling somebody up. I won't go into any more, any more detail. There's nothing more obtuse than that, but it's just, it's just about the, the, the symbolism of having to connect and to disconnect versus having this sort of open channel of communication. And it is interesting, isn't it? Both my children are, I know yours are still at home, but mine have both left home. Um, they're 22 and 24. And they call me, Jazz calls me a lot when she's walking. Yeah. And, you know, so she'll have a, she'll have the picture on. I might be able to see her. I might not. She'll then go back into her apartment. She'll be doing stuff. And, you know, if it's a day when actually I can have that longer conversation with her, um, you know, she just carries on with her life. I, I just happen to be on a phone next to her. So that's a very, you know, it's, but she's very comfortable doing that. I've become comfortable doing that. I think that would be a weird thing to do with other people, but it is kind of about the only way that you can have a proper conversation. You need to do sort of proper things at the same time. I, I guess yeah, it, it probably does. It links back into that fundamental behavior trait that we have that makes us feel relaxed or makes us do something slightly different. There is not much that's particularly informal about sitting in front of a screen, is there? Yeah. Although I think, you know, some of those, you know, both Amazon and Facebook, or because it's called a meta now, You've launched all those devices with screens and the, the meta portal was something I dreamed about for a long time and then haven't bought it since they created it. But there, there will be a time when we get comfortable with that. We're getting yeah. closer. It's just not a critical mass yet. 
Yeah, exactly. I, I completely agree. I completely agree. Um, so you went from Facebook to McDonald's. So a yes. company that's very close to me. I've worked with them for a long time. Um, and, at, you know, at a time for them, I think that digital digital was very important to McDonald's. But there was quite a difference between it being important and that actually doing it, let alone doing it well. And I wonder where you were. And, and you know, I'm not saying anything that I don't say to them. So this is not some sort of great revelation. Um, and it is quite different now. Uh, where were you on that kind of spectrum when you were there? Where were they? So, I mean, I think they, they were at a real kind of acceleration point. You know, they, they hired a global chief digital officer from, from Amazon, if I remember, at the same time. And then there was a big push on both the marketing component of the brands and media and those sort of experiences. And at the same time, a big, big push into the, the e-commerce or the systems themselves. So France had been quite a, a leader in terms of deploying yes. units where you could order in store. And that became really important sort of elsewhere in the world. So, so there was a really, really clear roadmap. But, but again, you know, McDonald's is a McDonald's because of the corporate and because of the franchisees, it's quite a, a complex system to move, but very, very strong when it gets going. Yeah. Um, and I had the joy actually of working with McDonald's on the agency side in the Middle East. So I worked with them a lot and understood a lot about how the franchise model worked. them culturally. Ah, interesting. From Leo, Leo Burnett. Yeah. So, yeah. so that was, I mean, that was really interesting. And and it was and it's great because they really think through very, very hard. You know, working on working on the interior of the restaurants was super, super interesting. And thinking really hard, you know, that the, the units to order on screen in France, it's where they started, were a real strategic necessity. So where elsewhere in the world, consumers kind of graze at McDonald's, particularly in the US, but also in Anglo-Saxon countries. They kind of eat all along the day. You know, they'd come in, go out, and it's quite distributed. In France, everybody eats between 12 and 2. And so the challenge was that they were quite quiet at certain times of the day. And then there was this peak of people, and they couldn't have enough staff, and the lines started to get long. So they said, okay, how do we lock in the order? How do we get the order earlier? How do we do it without staff? So that forced them to innovate. And so they did an amazing job there. And so then that was deployed globally. And then you said, okay, well, how do I order outside the store? How do I make it come in? And at that point, they weren't ever going to do delivery. You know, there was this big discussion about never going to do delivery because the fries won't be right when they arrive. Since then, they've signed up with every single delivery company on the planet because that's what you have to do. So, so it was a really interesting period. It was an interesting period as well because they wanted to move very fast in the digital space. And so what happened is that in that time, digital had quite a an overlap both with IT and with marketing, trying to find its space. And that worked well on certain days and not so well on other days. But I think that's that's par for the course in digital transformations. You know, it's what I've always done and I've seen that everywhere. There are there are feathers that are ruffled and then people who want to get on board. And do you know what? That's so interesting because it's completely right. And they did flip-flop for some time, like most organizations did. And, and you, you're, the thing I always admire about McDonald's is they're very fast followers. They tend to never lead, but they, gosh, they follow fast and they can- Because, really because they're a franchise model, they can't really test. You know, when, it, no. when, it, when they go to scale, it has to work because yeah. they are then the providers, the clients, whatever it is to the franchisees. Yeah. So, they, so they go slowly until it's perfectly right. And when it's right, the system, as they call it, is an immediate kind of accelerator of making it happen. Yeah, yeah. And they have that lovely, um, well, they call it the, the triple stool, don't they? So the three-legged stool yes. of, and for those people listening that don't know about it, um, so it is the franchisee, the McDonald's team, and then the suppliers. So, you know, me, you, when you were at Leo's, uh, absolutely critical part of that triumphant, yes. and they all fit together. And I, and I 
often think for people as I see, you know, during the 10 years or so that I've worked and advised McDonald's, um, the people that work really well, that come in, have some sort of knowledge of McDonald's, whether it's been agency side, whether they've they've kind of learned through the organization. Um, you know, people like Jill McDonald were there a long time, but she came in from BA. That was hard to begin with. Most people that come in get spat out quite quickly because isn't that, they... Isn't that the case for all organizations though? You know, you, we look at people's CVs, you know, I'm recruiting like crazy at the moment. You look at people's skills, you look at what they've done, but the most important thing is to understand the DNA, the culture, how an organization works. Now, any organization, whether that's Facebook, Meta, L'Oreal, McDonald's, if you understand how the organization works, you, you can do anything. Yeah. Yeah, I think you can, but it's interesting, isn't it? How would you articulate... Because I think this is part of the problem. You're absolutely right. But often it's difficult to explain what the DNA and culture of your organization is, particularly if it's a kind of more global or international. So, you know, if you say you're, you're hiring quite a lot at the moment, how do you explain and articulate the, the culture of L'Oreal? With difficulty? It, you, you don't explain a culture because culture is, is, is nuance, it's experience, it's how people work together. You have to talk about practical things that can be taken kind of as part of the recipe. You know, it's, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's an ensemble of different things. You know, we talk about our matrix organization, we talk about innovation, we talk about wanting to, to drive for excellence, talk about the purpose, talk about our brand portfolio. You know, I think, you know, a lot of the hiring I'm doing at the moment, people don't realize the breadth of the brand portfolio. They hear L'Oreal and they think L'Oreal Paris or L'Oreal Pro, and that's about it. So just, just educating people to say, okay, well, in the UK, we've got 37 brands. Globally, we've got over 60. And suddenly, you're like, okay, so that completely spins my mind around very differently about how you're working. Yes. But it's, you're, you're yeah. right, it's very hard to define culture. And so that's why people who have experiences of organizations, inside, outside, boomerangs, whatever it might be, are extremely valuable because they know what the what the codes are, the way things work, how to engage. Yeah, yeah. So you've now been at L'Oreal for over five years, um, and I think you've done some some pretty exciting and innovative things in that time. How have you been able to be um, maybe the leader that you wanted to? Have been able to get through and, and enable L'Oreal to do some of those things? It's a good question. I'm not quite sure I know the answer to that one. I think, you know, it's, I, I take everything back to people these days. It's about, it's about knowing what people above you, people below you, people alongside you want to do and how to get them excited. You know, my, so my first role, I was CMO for the Africa Middle East zone. So that was, again, that was super exciting. You know, I, I'd lived in the Middle East. I knew about the Middle East, really happy to come back. I didn't really know Africa very much. So, but I understood developing markets and I understood the challenge of both skill sets and resources and making things happen. So there's a piece about people, particularly in the Middle East, you know, really getting people on side, understanding, building those relationships, and then just trying to do very simple things really, really well. I always want to do simple things well, because when on paper, you look at simple things, you go, well, that's boring. It's not exciting. But when you do it well, everybody's blown away. So I've learned that. And hopefully that's exciting. Give me an example of that, Lex. You know, we, so when I started, e-commerce wasn't such an enormous thing, and particularly not across, across those regions. And so we just said, okay, let's pick one or two partners for each country. That's it. And let's try and do a really good job. You know, let's sell and let's get some critical mass rather than saying, you know, we want to open up to every single retailer and put products everywhere. And so, and we picked a couple of partners, you know, one partner we picked, I remember there's, a, there's an e-commerce company across Africa called Jumia, really exciting company, really slow to grow because of those markets. 
but sticking with them time after time. And, you know, even now I sometimes get a note every now and again from, you know, from South Africa, from Kenya, from Morocco, from Egypt, you know, ah, oh, this partnership that we kicked off in such and such hotel on such and such a day is now growing. So it's just, it, it's about picking big fundamentals, trying to do them really well and making sure they grow, but also making sure that everybody is super aligned in an organization like ours, where there are lots of priorities, lots of brands, lots of things going on, making sure that it's super, super clear. And I think that's, that's still something that I'm still learning on because I get excited about lots of things at the same time and get quite emotional about them and want to do everything. So calming myself down and saying, you know, one thing, communicate the one thing, have some KPIs, a bit of structure, all the things that tell you in books, but are really boring. I'm really bad at listening to advice and then realizing 10 years later, that was actually the right thing to do. So some, so some, uh, some strategy and structure is good. Um, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you said so much of it now sits with the people and sits with that culture. You know, I think traditionally we would always say it's strategy, then structure, then people. And that's the way, you know, if you're trying to make marketing happen, if you're trying to business happen, that's what you need. Do you think, do you think that's right now? Is that, is that the place to start? So, I mean, I, I, like, I like the sound of it and it sounds right, but I think what I realized that I spend most of my time thinking about at the moment is what are the right skills for our people? So I think actually we've almost flipped it over. Marketing's got so complicated, so broad between the number of channels, between data, between slipping into commerce, that we need to think much more about the skills people have. And, you know, I think we used to talk, you know, a few years ago, five, 10 years ago, we used to talk about T-shaped marketers. You needed one expertise and then you need a little bit of knowledge everywhere. Yeah. And, I, and I now, you know, now that's M, you know, it's, it's I think there's three, three pillars to the M. You need three strong expertises plus the generalism. Because so much in marketing has become so complicated. If you don't know how your piece fits into everything else, then you're not going to succeed. So yes, the strategy is important. Yes, making it clear to everybody. But having the people with the right skills in the right places, working in the right structure, is probably as important, if not more important now. And I, you know, I, I think I like that idea of the M. So does that mean you as the leader have to be the M or you need to employ the M? I think everybody needs to be some sort of M. I think the question is, what are the... What are the verticals for each person? And they're different for individuals. You know, I, take, I talk about this a lot. And every time somebody says, well, what are the, what are the verticals of the M? And I come up with, you know, I think there's being data literate, understanding the consumer or understanding the consumer journey or being empathetic or whatever it is about consumer centricity. And then a piece about strategy, because I love to think about, you know, thinking about complex problems and framing them. But for somebody who's in data science, it may be something completely different. You know, they may need a bit of media knowledge or a bit of sales knowledge. So I think everybody needs different pillars depending on how they fit into the organization. Yes, that's that's interesting, isn't it? Because I think when we were talking about T-shaped marketeers, I think it, there was a similarity to the T, wasn't there really? Um, you know, of course, you, you could be the specialist and the specialism would be different. But I like the idea that, because that's the bit that really annoyed me, is that I don't think you do need to all have the same skill sets. I think you need to all be going in the same direction, though. Um I'm interested. So, you, you know, I think you're right. It's absolutely a conversation I'm having all the time. We're having all the time around where marketing is going. And, you know, a lot of companies over the last couple of years have become very digitally enabled. enabled. They've looked at e-commerce. They've done everything that actually you were doing at Facebook and, and then at McDonald's, which is where does it fit and how does it fit? And I think people that weren't from a digital startup background, um, have made some very, very quick decisions. What I now see is a lot of them are going, okay, well, we've sort of got our model right. Um, we've now got to look to go from perhaps 
survival to thriving or actually we've put in place some stuff that's probably not right it was a good quick fix but we need to now really look at this differently in order to be able to meet our new customer needs and again to grow where where are you what what's what's happening in the l'oreal world wow that's an enormous question um I think let me tease a few bits out of that. So I think the first one is that the digital transformation in marketing is never, ever done. I think there's this sometimes this notion that, oh, we've done digital, we've got it under control, we know where it's happening. There's always a new thing appearing in marketing, and that's what digital transformation is. You know, I think we used to call it digital five years ago, then suddenly pandemic hit, we called it e-commerce because everybody flipped to e-commerce and the channel shift. A lot of the conversations we're having at the moment around data, because that's kind of the thing that's hot at the moment. So, so I think the first piece is that digital transformation is never done. And so that means that you've always got to be thinking about, okay, how do I transform? What's the next piece? If marketing is a combination of art and science, it's never going to be completely scientific and completely kind of locked down into its square box. So I think that's the first piece. The, the other piece that always bothers me is whether it's marketing or, or digital, and I have a great deal of respect for, for, for academics and universities because it's very important, but not everything that you do on the job, you can learn in the classroom. There has to be a combination of both. You know, as some, somebody said, I stole their quote, which was digital was a bit like a sport. You need to practice to make it work. You know, you can start to figure out some of it from yeah. a video or from a textbook. So when you put all of those two things together, we're still transforming and you've got to test and learn to do it. That creates the environment to say, okay, I need to be thinking about certain things. They need to get to maturity. I need to be passed off. And then I need people in the front end in innovation. So I think whether it's an organization that's tried something out and said it's failed, there's still a learning piece there. Whether they've jumped into the metaverse and spent millions now to create whatever, I don't know. Uh, I think I read something about a Chipotle virtual restaurant. You know, there's, there's massive amounts of learning in that. It may not be where they're making their money, but you've got to test these things to learn. You know, e-commerce is a great example. Where, where, you know, it takes... I make this joke, it's probably a poor one. You know, it takes a consumer about 30 seconds to open their wallet, take out their credit card and type the numbers into the screen. For a CPG organization to list the product on Amazon or any e-commerce site, get the right visuals up online, the right keywords, the copy, drive some media to it, make sure they can fulfill from a supply chain point of view. That takes months. So you've got to be ahead of the game. You've got to keep thinking. Yeah. And yeah, I just, I was just, I'm just laughing at that. It's so true, isn't it? I mean, you know, literally customers want to be as quick as possible and the quicker they need to be, the fewer clicks they have, obviously yeah. the more complex that whole process is. Um, I was talking to, uh, well, actually a number of people, but Kenyatta Nelson from N Brown Group last week. And we, we had this conversation around following on from what we just talked about here now, which was, are you focusing on performance marketing or are you focusing on brand marketing and how does the role of everything else fit around there? And he was very clear and a bit like you, which was, do you know what? It's all about focus and it's all about one word, which is marketing. There's no performance versus brand versus anything else. Um, are you drawn in that direction or are you still very distinctive about the way you approach different channels, the way you look at marketing versus digital versus performance versus whatever you're going to call it. It, it. it depends who you're talking to, because as you get lower into the organization, people are doing the work, they need a space to work it. But at, at the overall level, yes, I hate digital marketing because I don't think digital marketing is a thing. I don't really don't like the word digital anymore because it's a bit vague. Yes, it needs to be marketing as a whole. And yes, you need a balance between upper funnel and lower funnel brand and performance. 
all these things need to balance. I think there has been, there was, there was definitely a massive shift towards performance marketing when we went into COVID. You know, you're opening up distribution channels. I think it's Benedict Evans who says that performance media is the new rent. And you need to look at it slightly differently. You don't look at it as a media channel. You look at it as, well, I haven't got people walking down the high street. I need them to see, I need eyeballs. And so I need to pay for that. So there's maybe a piece of, of performance media that is a table stakes now. But at the end of the day, yes, you know, we're, we're building brands, we're selling promises, ideals to people. Beauty is a very emotional category. You can't just be functional and say two for one at the bottom of the funnel. You've got to build the brand and build the excitement around it. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think kind of even feels like even more so now, I think in a way, because we've been uh, at home for, for a few years, now beauty becomes very important again. Are you seeing that in sales terms or not? So we, we see definite shifts between categories. You know, being, being a pure player in beauty and covering every category, it's really nice to be able to see that. You know, when lockdowns first hit, people stopped wearing makeup and fragrance almost overnight. And then as the lockdown drawn and it was kind of more centering, looking at yourself, thinking about wellness, skincare just exploded. Skincare was already something that was growing and then, it, and then it's taken off. But then you've got you've got these things, you know, economists call the lipstick effect, where when the recession starts to hit or, or economy is slightly in crisis, people still buy makeup and lipstick. And so we see that makeup picked up massively as soon as, as soon as lockdowns ended. So so we see all the all the shifts between the categories. Yeah. But it's, it's funny you ask about, you know, the top and the bottom. You know, my first job after university about 127 years ago was in the US in, a, in an agency, an advertising agency, but doing only brand consulting. So taking all of their branding work and selling it as a consulting product. And I think maybe that that trained me to be, we call it media neutral, but I don't know if people say that anymore since about 1994, but just to, to love brands and, and the promise of the brand, not just the execution, but what it delivers on between the ears of, of the individuals touching it. And what do you do with your people? Because I think there are, um, you know, of course, skills are changing quite rapidly. And you said, you know, you're employing at the moment. Are you employing because you're growing and you need more people? Or are the skills that you need within your marketing teams differing? So a bit of both. Yes, I think new bits of the business are growing. E-commerce, what we're doing online, data-driven work. Skills are changing as well, but so as we grow, yes, we need different sorts of skills. So I think it's it's always a combination of both. You know, we're always you know if you, you know the job of my team, I look after all the expert functions. Is is marketing excellence and marketing transformation, or marketing excellence and marketing innovation? You can call it innovation, you can call it transformation, depending on what day of the week it is or how much coffee you've had. But that needs new skill sets all the time. But it needs those new skill sets blended with everything that existed. And I think that it's the blending piece that's always the challenge. It's those T's versus those M's. Yeah. You need overlap. You need a bit of understanding of what somebody else is doing, as well as my expertise at the same time. And how to bring those people together? Because I find we worked a lot. We do work a lot with um, high performance teams in organizations, and they often sit in the innovation and the transformation teams. I mean, they, they sit often broadly in marketing, but particularly those two areas. And, uh, you know, I think there are a number of things that makes people right for that kind of part of the business, but also is quite challenging for them to perform at their best consistently uh, because of the kind of people that they are. How do you find and how do you motivate those types of people? To, uh, because it, it's it's a tough part of the business, isn't it? To constantly innovate, yeah. to constantly transform. I think that there's, so there's, there's pieces about, you know, how do you make experts feel comfortable around generalists and how do you make sure you rely on them for their expertise and make sure that's valued so there's a piece about 
highlighting, spotlighting individuals and making sure that they are the key expert and respected for a certain subject. And then there is the piece about how do you make experts, one, interact with each other, and then two, interact with generalists. So I think, you know, in, in my direct team, so for instance, my leadership team, I really energize them to say, you need to understand what every expert function is doing. Just because you work in media, you need to understand consumer insights. You need to be able to, to cross-fertilize. It's the cross-fertilization or the magic that happens between the expert functions that's really important. So you've got the leadership team who are trying to bring everything together. You've got kind of highlighting individuals. And then the other thing we do, you know, we have a bunch of different team meetings. We have, we have every type of team meeting on the planet. We have a Monday morning kind of stand-up scrum. It's not stand-up anymore since people are on screens or we have a big monthly get together. We're always sharing almost on avant-premiere work that teams are doing internally across all our functions. It may not be directly useful for them. They may not even understand it sometimes because it's an expert function that somebody else is doing. But they're seeing it ahead of the rest of the organization. They're getting a bit of a feel for what's going on. And so they start to understand that just because I'm really deep in this space, there are other people really deep in other ones. They need to understand what's going on. But it's, 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 a, it's a challenge. And, and I think we have to remember that everybody has a slightly different frame of purpose, frame of reference for what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's come back to, to you now. We've, we've done a little bit of your career. We've done some lovely pieces around your people and, and the thing. Uh, you know, how you help them and support them and lead them. What, if you look back on your career to date, um, have you had any sort of big reset moments or has it been a series of incremental resets as you talked about earlier to kind of accelerate to where you've got to? I think, I mean, I'm not sure I can think of big reset moments, but I think every time you have an evolution, whether it's inside the same organisation or changing organisations, you know, this is my, my third role within L'Oreal, everyone is, is somewhat of a reset because you say, okay, what is this new role? What have I learned? How do I attack it? You know, so every time somebody gives you a blank piece of paper, you have to reset yourself. When you change category, when you change industry, when you change function, it's much more because you think, okay, I got through interviews. I got an, I got an offer, but that's only part of the journey. You know, the journey really starts on day one when you start to figure out the organization. And, and I think that's a bit like, you know, I've got one of those careers that people call squiggly careers. I think, I think you, you, you pull on, you pull on your experiences that builds into something. And then every time you start something new, you say, okay, how is that relevant? I'm a, I'm a big advocate of that book, Range by Epstein, that you know, talks about you know, having a broad range of skills helps people. Yes. And that's it. And I feel much more comfortable now. I've read that book with my squiggly career because I used to be accused of jumping from job to job. So it's, it's good to find a book that supports your argument versus anything yeah, else. So, so now you know. Uh, but how do you motivate yourself? Because... You know, look, you have a big role. Um, it's not just, it, you know, it, it has, you've worked internationally. So you're working with lots of different cultures, different types of people, lots of broad um, sectors. That's, for some, you know, it is your squiggly career, but for some, that's quite a daunting thing to do. How do you motivate yourself? It's definitely daunting. You, you know, I, I really enjoy what I do. But actually, there are two things that I really love the people element. So I, I might be an introvert, but I like being a leader as well. I like being a leader and a coach, whatever, whatever it is, you know, putting people in the right place, making sure they're set up for success. Um, but then I also love marketing. I love the fact that, you know, I talked about art and science, the creativity, the strategy. I think, it, I think it's a great, one of the few functions that's left sort of undefined and unanswered. Somebody said to me last week that marketing is the department of unanswered questions. I think that's great because it means you can make up the answers and as long as you've got enough conviction, you can deliver on them. So I think, you know, between loving marketing and really enjoying the people element, 
I, I'm very excited by what I do and that makes me passionate about it. And that keeps me motivated even when I have to spend days doing work with legal or finance or, or things that aren't, aren't right in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see that. I can see that. And I think um, actually often um, it, we, we've seen and we've read a lot about it, introverted people make very good leaders because they're very, they're very caring and they care about, I like your point about how do you get people to perform at their best? Um, and that's kind of your role, isn't it? Yes. Um, you're a dad as well. You've got three girls. So that's quite a lot of girls in your household. Um, that's right. Uh, now, some of them are a bit young, so I'm not quite sure whether they're into beauty products in a big way yet. But how do you balance being a dad, um, doing the role that you do, the traveling that you've done? How does that all work? It's difficult. It's difficult. I have a, have a strong partner to rely on. I, I'm definitely grateful to a certain extent to have a role that I've traveled much less over the last couple of years. And yeah. then, and we talked a lot about lockdowns, but, you know, being at home with them, particularly when schools were closed was, was somewhat interesting, lots more quality time, but then I had to learn long division again, which wasn't quite so easy. Yeah. Um, it, it's difficult. It's, it's really hard to balance work and family. Um, and, and, I, and I don't think I do a good enough job of it, if I'm, if I'm honest. Um, it, it's on my mind. I have a dog to walk as well. It's about as close as I get to exercise. So, so I'm grateful that he's there. He's a he, balances things out. Okay, that's good. It's about, it's about being intentional. I think it's about finding the little things that make a difference. You know, I try and take my kids to school almost every day of the week, whether we're walking, whether it's throwing them out the car, uh, not at high speed, but uh, when I'm when I'm driving into a, into the office or into a meeting, but but that makes a difference. You know, it's it's funny. Yeah. You know, that my my youngest daughter, she's the last one to get dropped off, and she has about ten minutes or fifteen minutes of kind of waiting after the other two have gone to school. That's pure quality time, even if we're sitting in the car parked somewhere in in Southwest London. So mm. I think it's about just trying to find the little things that make a difference and more constant interaction rather than kind of big dramatic gestures. Yeah. Um... I completely agree. And that's, and that's so interesting, isn't it? I think the number of people I now talk to who really try and take their children to school, you know, as many days of the week as they can, where actually before they just didn't, it wasn't even something they could think about or consider because you know, they commuted forever and they always left before the kids went to school. So but it, is, but it is extremely hard. And I'm really grateful that my wife is there to be able to, to, to support on that because it's, it's hard work to manage work and home life at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And and then, you know, you said you do a bit of walking with your dog. That's good. What else do you do to physically, mentally look after yourself? Oof, not enough. Not enough at all. Cleaning up uh, little bits of Barbie around the house. I, I don't do enough. I, I love to read and, and fiction, nonfiction. I think that's probably, you know, we were talking about leadership journeys earlier. I've, I've read a lot of kind of coaching and management and leadership and all these things. I, I enjoy those because it's not it's not always through talking to somebody else that you find yourself. Sometimes you find it in a book. You know, I talked about range. The other book that I think is wonderful is Quiet by Susan Cain. You know, every introvert in the world's read that and tries to beat every extrovert over the head with it. So uh, that's my job done. But uh, I don't do enough to look after myself physically. It's always on my to do list and always somewhere near the bottom. It's interesting that, isn't it? I'm always fascinated by people like you who are clearly very thoughtful, very good. And look, you know, you don't look out of shape. So it's not like you are, you know, you're, you're not eating and drinking yourself into, into overweight and obscurity. But, um, you know, you know I, I think it's interesting that we don't make time. We don't make time for it because why is it not important enough? If you said to your children, and of course the answer would be, yeah, I'd like to be around for you for as long as I can. 
And we know that, you know, just working a few extra hours is not going to give you hours extra back on your life. Whereas yep. looking after yourself, doing some more exercise, absolutely will. Yeah, no, no, I, I completely agree. And you know, I don't drink a lot and I don't smoke, but it's not enough. You know, I, there's a, I, I met somebody a few months ago who, whose boss took them out once a month for a walk on the moors. And that was their one-to-one session. It was a kind of a four or five hour walk. I thought that was incredible, you know, a combination of work and discussion and kind of meeting of the minds. But uh, but I haven't quite figured out how we can do that. Yeah. How Broadway is the, the most exciting place to walk around 500 times. It's Well, maybe for five hours not. But do you do walking meetings? No, no, no. I haven't, haven't got to that yet. But, okay. Uh, okay, well, maybe that's one thing you might start doing. Makes a big difference. Look, Lex, it's so good to talk to you. I think, you know, reflecting on our conversation, you are... Um, you know, you're very to the point, you're very thoughtful. I think the analogy that you are about small incremental resets for acceleration seems to be actually to define your career, to define the way that you lead, the way that you think about the passion you have for both marketing and leadership, but for your people as well. And, you know, Tesco's has said for a long time, every little helps. And it really feels like for you, that is probably a good a good strap line because every little does clearly help. Um, and, you know, you've been and you are a very successful leader at L'Oreal. And I know from people who've worked with you uh, how much they respect you and admire you. And certainly within the industry as well, you've done a lot for the industry. And, uh, and you know, you give a lot back. So thank you very much for talking to me today. Thank you. A real pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed Reset the Podcast, I'd love it if you would forward it to your work colleagues, friends and family. Reset the Podcast is a Let's Reset and Advertising Week global production. Executive producer is Richard Larson, with me Suki Thompson. Thanks to our sponsor Liars Non-Alcoholic Spirits and voiceover artist Talitha Penny. Music provided by Audio Network.